Welcome, everybody, to the weekly podcast at cnctoday.com. I'm your host, Jay Pearson. Hey, I am really excited. I've been getting a lot of great feedback lately. A uh, little good, a little bad, i got to be honest with you. Um, but it's all been highly appreciated, so I just want to thank you for that. It's funny. Uh, we have a community of machinists, shop owners, potential machinists, curious listeners that uh, just want to listen and see what this show's all about. I have been amazed at how many people in our audience are podcast production engineers. <laughs> I've been getting uh, comments all the way from, uh, I don't like the music to uh, it was too loud. And it, it just makes me laugh because really what we're more interested in is the content. And so far the content has been uh, uh, well-liked and well-received by most of the audience. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, we're coming to you a couple days late, and that is, uh, I don't want to say it's anyone's fault, but what has been happening is we've been upgrading some of the equipment. You know, the first few shows, we thought, hey, we'll launch it, see if anyone's even going to listen. You know, we'll find out what our uh, three viewers think of it, and then we'll go from there. And, you know, we've accumulated quite a decent audience. Uh, I don't know how big the numbers are. We can't really tell. And the stats on web pages sometimes don't. They're not accurate. So we're just going with some basic numbers and realize, hey, this is starting to grow, you know, and we're going to invest in some new equipment. So that's why we're coming to you a couple days late. It's because we've been upgrading the equipment, planning out better shows, uh, even thinking of bringing on uh, kind of maybe like a a little uh, co-host or someone that can help us out with interviews or whatever. So, uh, yeah, so I just want to thank you again for your support and for your ideas. Well, uh, last time on the show, I told you that we were going to be talking about uh, uh, the home machinist and the rural machine shop, and I think they go hand in hand sometimes. I think every shop starts with uh, it being you know a couple machines in a garage, in a home, in a uh, in the back of uh, someone else's shop, you know. So uh, they kind of go hand in hand. I think uh, the home machinist has. Uh, either starts as a hobby or starts as a necessity. Maybe uh, a guy is working at a machine shop and wants a little extra income, and they're skilled, and that's understandable. And I know plenty of guys um, that uh, that's how their business has started, along with mine. I started my business in a in a small shop that I subleased from a bigger company. So let's jump right into this. The home machinist, okay. In my opinion, you got two sides uh, to the home machinist. One is obviously the hobbyist, a guy that likes getting his hands dirty, maybe works in a totally unrelated field. Uh, it's in a different career, possibly, and just likes the fact of uh, getting in there, making stuff. And I think that's innate to the uh, human psyche, where we want to be creators. We want to be part of something. We like working with our hands. It's fulfilling. I really do think. I just had a, a conversation recently with a college professor that came by our company and uh, we had mutual friends. So I told him to stop in and give him a little tour. And, and he had a little uh, lathe, a manual lathe and a CNC. Well, it was more of a router than a, a milling machine. And uh, it was neat because he was building his own CNC machine. Now, he's not the first person I've heard of doing this. As a matter of fact, I went to the bookstore the other day and I picked up a Home Machinist magazine and there were there were two Home Machinist magazines. One was called 
the home shop machinist and the other it, it, it escapes my mind i think it was uh uh i can't remember but I, i'm pretty sure they were by the same publisher and uh and, and it just uh it was neat because i know that there's a market out there uh big enough that would warrant two magazines and uh, as i started flipping through it i i realized something i realized that these are people that really enjoy working with their hands obviously and uh, i realized two things first of all the home machinist does so mostly out of hobby and uh, that took me back because i can't relate to uh, machining as a hobby i mean that's my career and sometimes the last thing i want to do when i come home is think about engineering or machining or anything like that i mean uh but uh, I can understand when you're answering calls all day or pushing buttons or, you know, maybe working in the field and you just want to come home and unwind and, uh, you know, go in your garage and make a little widget or some sort. Yeah, that can be a stress reliever. And I appreciate that. And, and uh, you know, I was flipping through this uh, machinist magazine. Uh, I actually bought one of them, the Home Shop Machinist, looking at it right here. And they have uh, a couple articles that are geared towards improving your own machines. And that makes perfect sense when I think about it. I, I, I was thinking to myself, why would you want to constantly be building something to make your machine better? Well, these home shop machinists, they don't have products. They don't have customers. Uh, that's that's a big deal to them, you know. And who wouldn't want that? It's like working on an old car, but uh, in this case, improving like an old car, using the old car to make the improvements. So here you have a CNC machine, which you're using most likely in manual mode to turn it into a CNC or to increase its capacity or to increase its rigidity or the table size. Uh, the other side of the home machinist is the side job. Now this is for the guy who really is not out there buying, you know, a $500 manual machine and trying to put servos and uh, ball screws on it. This is a guy that's investing in in real, legitimate, quality machine stuff that's proven. You know, the the Makinos, the Morisikis, the Haas, the Fidals, you know, all those uh, uh, big companies that sell to a, a serious user. And these guys are putting them in their garages. Um, in other words, this guy has a second job. It just happens to be in his garage. Now, this supplemental income... I think really does come at a price and maybe there's some of you out there that are thinking of going this route or have gone this route and maybe you're not seeing the forest through the trees but uh, some things that immediately jump out to me and uh, to others as I've discussed this with them is uh, first of all you're creating a lot of work in your life uh, not only are you working uh, maybe an eight-hour shift and then you're coming home and putting in uh, maybe two three four five more hours it's a lot of work and you know sometimes it takes a toll on your your life uh, personally uh, physically um, you know and next thing you know you're having uh, machining dreams you know and you're you're having nightmares of tools crashing or you're out of stock or customer calling you and you're not even close to finishing the order I've had those when I first started my business and I know a lot of people out there right now are probably laughing because they can relate too. and personally if I were to go this route I think I'd only do it if I'm working to achieve a business goal. I would only do this and I would only advise people to do this if they're working to achieve a business goal.
Now, this is important. There's guys out there that uh, just want to have more money or they want to have a machine in their garage. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're getting into this idea of home machine for profit, you can really start to, to miss the point if you don't have a point, if you don't have a goal. For example, let's say we have a machinist named John. John works at a company, an eight-hour shift, and he just bought a brand new lathe. He's very comfortable with lathes. He comes home. He puts in two or three hours. Maybe he's got a customer. Uh, maybe he's trying to launch his own little product or something like that. And John doesn't have any goal in sight. What will happen over the years is John is going to be sacrificing those several hours a day to work on his product or his jobs. And what happens is John starts trading his life for money. He starts trading his free time for more work time. He starts trading his family time or family values for business gain. And sometimes it's just not worth it unless you have a clear and highlighted path to achieve your goal. Now here's some goals that I think would be beneficial to most guys that want to start a shop in their own garage. Number one, you've got to set a goal, a timeline goal, saying I'm going to do this for two years and at a two-year point I'm going to reevaluate and see if I can go off on my own. That's a really healthy thing. Of course, you hear these people talk about goals all the time. And this is one of those areas where it's a really good idea because if you lose sight of your goal, you can be sucked into years and years of hardship. Um, and, and you're going to be living out those negatives that I just mentioned, the loss of family time, the loss of free time, uh, compromising your, your family values. If you don't set those goals, you can be easily sucked into that. Another goal you might want to set is I want to be able to take my product to market and I'm going to use this time for prototyping. I'm going to use this time to stock inventory. Or another thing might be you want to set a goal to only work a set number of hours where you start turning work away. You know, If say that you work an early morning shift and when you get off at three o'clock the family isn't home till five or whatever your roommates or your parents aren't home till five, just say I'm only going to work those two hours and that's it. That'd be a really healthy place to start. 10 hours of work a day is not going to kill anyone. I think most people should work at least 10 hours a day in some capacity. That's my two cents. So in my opinion, these business goals are key. Don't lose sight of that. It can suck you in. It can create problems. Uh, we all know of someone who's a workaholic for no apparent reason. It's okay to be a workaholic. But you got to have a goal in sight. You know, there's just people that go through their entire lives being workaholics, and I think they have regrets when they look back. I've spoken to several people who just regretted working as hard as they did with no goal. So let's transition away from that. I don't want to bum you out with some of these issues. But I do want to bring to light some of these factors that you might face. For example, another one is neighbor issues. The biggest factor, the single biggest factor is noise. If you're running a machine shop and one neighbor goes to the city about you, you're pretty much done. It's very difficult to have a shop 
in an area of residence and be able to keep the noise under control. Uh, it might be uh, advantageous to build out your garage into a soundproof uh, environment so that you don't even have to worry about disturbing your neighbors. Some neighborhoods, people are uh, at work all day, so that might that might work out. But then again, if you're coming home at uh, 3 o'clock or 5 o'clock, you're going to have a hard time running your machines after hours. So in this case, it would probably benefit you to figure out how long you're going to be able to run this machine in your garage. And this goes along with the business plan. Oh, that's what I forgot to mention. Business plan, fancy word for goal. Okay. So your, your business plan says that you're going to run your machine out of your shop for a maximum of two years. Now, if you're going to run in that space, you've got to soundproof it. Well, go ahead and get some quotes, figure out how much it's going to cost to soundproof your garage. At that point, you can then take that number and amortize it out over the the span of time that you're going to be running your machine in your garage. Say it's that two years we've been talking about. Say it costs $10,000 to have your garage soundproofed, framed out, everything. So that $10,000 over the two years, we okay, we'll do it simple without any interest. That comes out to $416 a month. So that's basically your shop overhead for those two years. Now you think to yourself, okay, $416 a month, can I find an industrial space where I could put my machine, maybe in someone else's shop, for less than that? At that point, you've automatically realized that you do not need to be running your machine out of your garage. So that's that's the financial aspect of it. Yeah, it's nice, it's convenient to have a, a machine in your garage, but if you crunch the numbers, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. You could spend more of your time looking for an industrial space, especially if you haven't yet purchased a machine. Talk to some guys in the area, talk to some machine shops, talk to some other shops, like a, maybe you have a, a grinder that you use or an anodizer or uh, just some other person that has maybe an automotive repair shop or a pool company or a landscaping company where they're not there during the day. They have their trucks gone. Maybe you could tuck a machine off into the corner. So you've got kind of an advantage here. If you haven't yet bought a machine, you can plan this out and do it right from the very beginning. Okay, so we've talked about the noise factor. Here's another thing that most cities will object to, and that's the traffic that a business creates any business it doesn't have to be a machine shop but if you're creating traffic if you're having employees come people tend to not really like that one of the factors that jumps out at me is some of the delivery trucks if you're having a truck pull up with material that's noisy that's big people don't like that um, scrap collectors uh, oil collectors uh, sales people that might be coming around not not as likely but it's just a factor it's a possibility Another thing you need to look into are the city zoning permits. Most of the time, the city is just not going to bother you unless they have a complaint. It's your home. It's your property. You can do what you want with it. But another agency that really might give you more problems than the city is a homeowners association. Now, again, they're not going to necessarily go after you unless there's a complaint, but you never know. And especially if they have a like a charter or, or a... Uh, I'm going blank, but the set of rules, um, it just might say you can't have these businesses in our neighborhood. So those are some factors 
of a personal nature. Uh, let me bring to light some business factors. First of all, here's one thing to consider. Say that you start getting customers and you start doing well and they're happy, you're happy, and the business starts getting some momentum. One thing you really have to examine is how do you look in the eyes of the customer? You know, I just read an article, it made me laugh, and it kind of relates to this. This article was about this company uh, working out of Philadelphia that was a chicken supplier to restaurants. Now, <laughs> the problem with this, this uh, chicken supplier is that they were working out of a garage on the back of someone's property. Now, there were complaints of people getting sick at these different restaurants that they were supplying to, and the health department stepped in and looked, and the one common denominator was this chicken supplier. Well, when the health department called on them, they realized, wow, they're working in a garage. Now, I don't think the restaurants knew about it, and if they did, well, they're not going to admit it to the health department. But what was happening was the chicken supplier was delivering every day and they really didn't have a storefront or a business address that was pertinent to the restaurant owners. They didn't need to know where they were at. They probably didn't want to know. They had no use of knowing. But when the health department showed up at this garage, it was in terrible conditions. Uh, raw chicken on the floor, uh, slaughtered chickens all over and they weren't being processed. It was a nightmare. And so they were shut down immediately. But the question I'd like to bring to you is in this whole fiasco, who pays the price? Is it the chicken distributor or is it the restaurant? I mean, think about that. The chicken distributor is definitely going to have to pay a fine. They're definitely getting shut down and they will probably not ever be doing business ever again. But let's look at the bigger picture. Who is paying this price? If I lived in the Philadelphia area and I knew one of these restaurants that was buying from them, would I ever go back? And if I did go back, would I have a hard time getting the image of this story out of my mind? I don't think so. So let's relate this to a garage machine shop. If your customer is entrusting you to make parts, and some sort of issue comes up with their customer and they come back and they happen to trace it back, it has the potential to make your customer look bad if you're not running a quote unquote legitimate business because it's not at a business address, it's at a residential address. So that's something that's always gonna hinder your growth as a home machine shop. And a lot of buyers out there are going to go with shops that have ISO quality ratings in place. And uh, as a buyer, the last thing that you're going to want is to have an order for some parts and then your supplier is suddenly shut down. So that's going to be an issue. But if you put it into your business plan that, you're, that you have a goal that you're working towards and you're going to work out, work yourself out of that garage space, then you'll be okay. And especially if you can communicate that to your customer, you'll be even better. Now in all this, I'm, I'm giving you a lot of negatives, but I wanna end with a, a really good positive here, some good ideas for the home machinist. I think the best deal that a home machinist can do is to take overage work from their current employer. 
Now, this includes prototypes. This includes uh, stubborn jobs. This includes jobs that are just that are just going to be a nightmare to do and are going to take so much manpower. And you can take it off your boss's hands and say, "Hey, I will do this. Pay me at an overtime rate. Your machines aren't running. You're not having to have people stay later than they have to. Uh, just just pay me a premium." Uh, you know, get the get the pricing right where it's attractive for the owner and it's attractive for you. That right there is probably the best one I can think of because first of all, the end user, the buyer, is buying from a legitimate established company. That company is buying the parts from a legitimate trusted employee. It just happens to be that the employee is making the parts out of the garage. So everyone's happy and everyone trusts everyone along the line. Another area where a home machinist might succeed is through prototype work. If you're in an area where there's a saturation of machine shops, what happens is these established shops tend to get loaded up with production runs. And they very often don't have the resources to either shut down a machine or to have a dedicated machine for prototyping. Now we all know that there's a lot of money in prototyping because it's mostly setups. And when I say there's a lot of money, the per piece price is very expensive. As a home machinist, if you don't have the overhead as a bigger shop, you are automatically in an advantage to do prototyping faster, more efficiently, and ultimately less expensively than a bigger shop could ever do. Now in prototyping, fast turnarounds are key because you have engineers, you have designers waiting on these parts to assemble, to test. So if you can get these parts done fast and right, you're going to have a business that people are going to talk about. Now what I'd like to do now is make a little transition. I know we're covering the home machinists and I said we'd cover the rural machinists. And I did so so that these two things would uh, kind of go hand in hand. We're going to see a lot of similarities between the two. Now, as a rural manufacturer, you're probably in an area of the country where there's not a lot of customers, there's not a lot of support for the machinery you own, and there's definitely not a lot of trained employees in the area. So maybe you're thinking of starting a, a rural business, or maybe you have one and it's maybe not going so-so, or maybe you have one and it's going great. Uh, if that's the case, I'd love to hear from you. Please write to me, J-A-Y at pearsonindustries.com. Pearson is spelled P-I-E-R-S-O-N. But anyway, back to the subject. Say you're one of those first two. You're a guy that uh, is thinking about it or you want to start it or you have one and you are not doing so hot. Well, here's some things I just want to go over before we get into this. First of all, uh, there's, there's a few problems with the rural manufacturer business model. First of all, oftentimes there is a lack of vendor support. For example, if you get an order, there may not be an anodizer in your area. There may not be a grinder in the area, or there may not be a local material supplier. These are things that are going to hinder you. My second point here is the higher transportation costs. Now all these go hand in hand because if you do find an anodizer or a material supplier, or some other type of uh, machine shop support, what happens is you're going to be delivering these parts all over, maybe two or three times. Of course, you're going to be having the material delivered to you. If you're in a rural setting, 
the material supplier will more often than not charge you for that delivery. Once you process the parts, you're having to pay for a delivery to the anodizer and back, or maybe to the anodizer, then to the customer. So there's going to be an inherent expense that's tied in with all of your transactions. Another problem, like I mentioned earlier, there are most likely no local customers. This is a big deal. A lot of customers, a lot of, a lot of buyers like to be in a face-to-face -face type interaction. They want to be uh, meeting you. They want to see your shop. They want to maybe pick up. They want to be able to drop in and drop off prints or whatever. This is going to be a human factor that you're going to have to get around. And I'd say there's a sub-problem to this because how do you find customers that are not in your area? We'll talk about that in a minute. Another problem might be that there's no machinery support. Say your machine is out and you have to wait an extra two days because uh, there's a uh, service tech uh, not in your area and he's got to drive out and it's going to be expensive because they typically start billing from when they leave their place till when they get to yours. Another one might be the lack of shop suppliers. Say you need a tool, maybe you broke a tool or you didn't plan and you might have to wait a day, two days, three days to get something in because you're ordering primarily by catalog, mail order, internet. This might be an issue. Another hindrance might be the fact that you have to fight the rural manufacturing stigma. Now this one just doesn't seem fair. Why would you not be able to perform as good as an urban manufacturer because you're out in quote-unquote the middle of nowhere? Sometimes it's an issue to people. You've got to fight an image with establishing yourself as a completely legitimate company that's just located farther away than most other companies. And again, we'll talk about some solutions to this. And uh, finally, one of the last problems I thought of was that there is little chance for word of mouth. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to get more work for your company. And that's how I think most shops get their work. If you're in a rural setting, you just don't have that many opportunities to have the word of mouth spread. So let's get to the positive side of this. Let's look at some solutions and advantages that a rural manufacturer has and must embrace. First of all, you are definitely going to have lower overhead. So you definitely have an advantage there. So let me talk about some solutions to some of those problems I talked about earlier. Now we talked about the lack of shop suppliers. These are your tool sales. These are your material suppliers. One way that you need to solve this problem is to pre-plan your jobs. Now say you get a stack of papers to quote, so a stack of prints. You need to start looking at those prints and saying, if I get this job, I need to have XYZ tools and ABC drills, okay? To, to pre-plan means to pre-order, to invest into that job, even if you don't get it, because one day you're going to need that tool. In the long run, you're already saving on overhead, so it's a good idea to pre-plan, have everything in place so that there's no delay in turnaround. A second solution for the rural manufacturer is that you must deliver lower prices or faster turnaround. Now in my company, we don't manufacture 100% of the parts that go into our products. We outsource about 40 or 
uh, and they're all to domestic manufacturers. And I've used a lot of rural manufacturers. And one of the things that draws me to them is the lower prices. It's got to be lower for me to turn my back to a local supplier and go, you know, uh, thousands of miles away. They've got to provide a product that's, first of all, right, second of all, on time, and third, lower priced. Or else there's no reason for me to turn my back on some of the local companies in my area. It's imperative that you have lower prices, and it's expected, to be honest. Now, this kind of ties into my third solution, and that's to offer business incentives. As a rural manufacturer, you might tell your customer, hey, do business with me. I will offer you free shipping so there's no difference there. Uh, you m might just have to do this because most local suppliers always have free local truck delivery. Or maybe you even say, hey, give us a couple jobs. We'll do some of them for half price or, gosh, Maybe sometimes it might even help to do a free job. I know that sounds crazy, but a buyer is taking a big risk at moving out of their geographical area. So it might be one of those things like a lost leader where you're doing this job. Maybe it's a 10-piece job that you're knocking out for them. You've got to make that job shine. You've got to get it to them in perfect condition with perfect quality parts, preferably ahead of schedule. Now, if you do that, for most normal buyers, most normal thinking people are going to feel sort of an obligation to give you follow-up work. So that might be a business incentive you might want to think about. Now another point of mine, which kind of plays off this last point, is to provide better customer service. I have one supplier that will acknowledge the order, will give email updates, I think it's daily or every other day or He'll do it as often as you request, and he will give you updates on what exactly has happened. For example, the material has been ordered. The material is cut. The material is on the first op in the machine. The material is being polished. The material has been sent out to anodizing. Uh, he has actually sent photos of the completed parts on a table saying, here's where we're at. Here's the tracking number. That's great customer service. That's something that's going to bring me back every time. Now, another way that may not pay off in the very beginning or might be overkill is to structure your business with a manufacturer's rep model where you are a rural manufacturer with one guy, maybe a sales guy, maybe two guys, maybe a team uh, in different cities where they are visiting shops. They have an entire portfolio ready to hand in. This does two things. First of all, it establishes legitimacy to your business because you have a face that the buyer can relate to. Uh, they have an instant local contact that can handle all the problems, all the purchasing, invoicing in that area. Now, like I say, it may not work in the beginning because you're going to have to pay that manufacturer's rep a retainer. Maybe it may be a few thousand dollars a month. They've got to be bringing in more money than you're paying them, obviously. So if you're just starting out, that may not be the best way to go. But if you're established and you're looking to get into a market, maybe putting a guy in the Midwest and a guy in Southern California, that would be a great way to go. Now, my last point kind of ties in with the last one, and that is marketing through the Internet. Now, I'm going to give you two solutions that are Internet-based that will return results. 
There's a uh, there's there's a few of them online. I think there's about two that I'm going to discuss here. The first one is the largest. It's been around the longest, and it's called MFG Quote. Their website you can access it through mfgquote.com or mfg.com. What it does basically is you pay them to have the ability to look at and quote jobs online. Now the buyers have the ability to post and award these jobs for free. Now what this creates is an environment where you're establishing yourself as a company that's invested in marketing online and you're ready to do this work and you're willing to meet customer needs. Now I have to warn you, I've been on both sides of this and it is very competitive, but it's an area in which the rural machinist prevails. The other company that does a similar thing is sourceauthority.com sourceauthority.com now I don't know too much about them I'm familiar with mfg.com but uh, they do the same thing uh, it I don't know how big their marketplace is uh, you might want to look into it uh, that might work in your advantage because if you have uh, fewer people on the system you can afford to raise your prices just a little bit because it's not as competitive now both of these are excellent ways to establish yourself in the manufacturing community. So it's about time to wrap it up. I hope these uh, two topics have helped some of you guys out there. and Maybe it was just entertaining for the rest of us that aren't in this situation. So thanks again. I, you know, I am so glad that you guys are giving me feedback again. Thank you so much. Looking forward to hearing your letters and your complaints, and we're just going to get it out there and we're going to throw it out and have a good uh, show next time. It'll be great. So I thank you for joining us this week on the weekly podcast at cnctoday.com. I've been your host, Jay Pearson. We'll talk to you next time.